Welcome to Best Adapted Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies and the stories that inspired them. With you, as always, uh, is me, Caleb, and uh, my co-host, Frank Meyer. How are you? Hey, Caleb. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I have a new suit coming in, which is exciting. Um, uh, I was inspired by the fresh looks in this movie. I have also picked up a VCR today, and I'm going to be able to to watch VHSs soon, which is good. Is the suit off the rack, or did you get it bespoke? Um... Off the rack, I'm way too low rent. I don't think I'll ever... I think this would be a good time to pop in with our, like, Mac Weldon sponsorship (laughs) when that comes together for us, though. Caleb, we have a guest today. Hello. Caleb and listeners, our guest today is Leo Martin. He is a establishment shill, straight from D.C., calling in right from the the swamp. He He has interned at the State Department and at different political organizations around... Is that too is that too graphic he, to mention? Well, first of all, it's not true. I, I've never been to the State Department, but um, well, you know, this is a film all about lying and true. Uh, embellishing details about careers. So, uh, former head of the State Department, Leah Martin, how are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Um, as someone who spent a lot of time networking, I, I completely um, empathize with <laughs> uh, uh, embellishing your record. Um, and the Brooks Brothers and Dupont Circle last time I checked closed, so. I also am in need of a bespoke tailor. Brooks Brothers everywhere is close. They were one of the casualties of of COVID. Leo, I wanted to. So you you were you were making calls in Georgia. How did it go over when you were telling people on the phone like tune in to my podcast appearance later uh, if you need more thoughts on whether or not to vote this uh, time? Well, considering I wasn't aware this podcast would go out before uh, Tuesday, January fifth. Um, not particularly well. I think the people I tried it with may have swung them away from our side. So, <laughs> yeah, I was going to vote for Reverend Warnock, but now this random person's calling me up, urging me to uh, listen to her podcast. Uh, I say that a lot of people call me ma'am on the phone, particularly people who are angry that I'm calling them. <laughs> Leo, I have you ever, obviously, as our listeners have probably picked up, you, you don't have quite the mid-Atlantic accent. Um, you are from both the the UK and Australia, and, and your accent is kind of a, a bit of the both. Do you ever, like, get grief or suspicion f- when making, like, phone calls or just, like, when you have to interact with, like, voters or other people in D.C. of, like, what's this well, No, I think it, um, the accent makes me seem more intelligent than I often am and uh, makes me more memorable. Though uh, I have had, not saying where this was, but I was interning somewhere, and people would yell on the phone. They can't. They can't even hire Americans to work for us. <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Caleb, I don't know if you know this, but Leo is perhaps our most qualified guest to be on a series of spy novels. Leo has a connection to uh, to the MI6 that I think we can unspool now. Yes, um, my parents have a friend who's a close friend whose uncle was Richard Dearlove, who was. Um, head of MI6, and I think was known as C from about 1999 to 2004, including the period of the run-up to the Iraq War, and you know the controversy there, including the um the so-called dodgy dossier mm-hmm. and um you know the questionable intelligence that MI6 provided, which have provided the case for that war. Because of that, you know, through this family friend, Lacarre's novels often brought up as a sort of accuracy in the truth they speak to the spy community. So the story goes when I think it was a christening or wedding, but the photographers who were there had to be MI6 photographers because they didn't want those photographs leaking out. And they wanted to make sure <laughs> that, you know, we very, MI6 was very careful about what photos were taken at the time. 
As someone who briefly wanted to be, not, well, continues to kind of want to be a spy someday, even though I have like literally no qualifications for that, um, I would be so fucking frustrated if like one of the like art boys that I went to high school and college with got MI6 credentials just by being a fucking wedding photographer. Uh, meanwhile, I'm out here just like drinking myself to death. There is, I guess there's kind of the, there's maybe more, not more we're willing to share on Mike, but any any last thoughts on, on Dick, Dear Love, and Le Carre? I guess the relevance of it, because, you know, I mean, considering Dear Love was head of MI6 in the period that the film was made in, and, you know, he's mentioned in the Chilcot uh, inquiry, which was the run-up to the Iraq War, and the relevance of that with the premise of the film, which is that fake intelligence leading to uh, the invasion of another country by the United States and Great Britain. No, I mean, we should get to it at the end, but like, this is kind of an, it is kind of insane that this movie comes out in mm-hmm. April of 2001. And it's an, it's an incredible, yes. like, pre 9 11 artifact for sure. So we're here today to discuss John Le Carre's 1996 novel, The Tailor of Panama, and the 2001 John Borman adaptation, starring Sean Connery and Jeffrey Rush. Not Sean Connery. Great movie. We're all in agreement, right? Like, just just great movie. This film would be infinitely improved if it was starring Sean Connery, but it's actually Pierce Brosnan. Fuck. Yeah, actually, I think Pierce Brosnan's one of the highlights of that movie. No, Um, I actually uh, think he's great. (laughs) He's the only thing that works, but... I think there's other parts that work, but I think a lot of... It's not so much things that don't work, it's just that things aren't played out well. Well, let's, let's get into this. So... Leo, you are a servant of the crown. Do you otherwise have any sort of relationship with John le Carre or this novel? I, well, John le Carre is a novelist who, it actually wasn't until I came onto this podcast that I finally sat down and read one of his novels, but was a, a novelist who sort of, for instance, I felt because you know, my dad was of that generation, uh, you know, I'd seen Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, I'd seen a few other of the John le Carre adaptations at the start of this lockdown. But no, this was the first time I actually sat down and you know worked through uh, one of Ron LeCarrie's novels. Should we get into kind of the the book? Yeah. There are, I think, kind of three crucial themes or kind of ideas that John LeCarrie is trying to get across um, in the book, um, or at least three things that make it notable or unique kind of within his, within his canon. Um, the first is that it's it's a book with a pretty specific time and place that it's pointing to, whereas I think... His Cold War novels that we've looked at are often in dialogue or referencing something that's been happening like the the Cambridge Five and like Kim Philby's defection um, or the construction of the Berlin Wall. But the Taylor of Panama is set pretty precisely between the U.S. invasion of Panama and the deposing of Noriega and the, the handing over in 99 of the Panama Canal uh, back to the Panamanians and outside of, of U.S. control. So I think that that kind of specificity makes it a bit unique in, in Le Carre's canon, um, and the fact that it's it's a timely novel, not just in what precedes it, but what it's leading up to and what it's going to be, what is what it's making predictions about how it's going to happen. The second thing that makes this novel, I think, special is uh, well, it's a novel about about tailoring and about men's tailoring, and it's a I think a pretty sumptuous writing and description of that art form. Um, I've been I've been watching a lot of Say Yes to the Dress in quarantine. And I think the distinction between tailoring and men's suits and other types of kind of clothing design that I've been seeing, I mean, I'm using Say Yes to the Dress as kind of a microcosm, is that show, which follows a dress company in New York. Um, these brides come in with like very specific requests, and it's all about kind of finding the singular dress that can meet those requests. 
And a lot of times it's about making something that's super memorable and that really stands out. Whereas I think tailoring and very much how Le Carre portrays tailoring in men's suits, it's actually about conformity more than it is about standing out. Um, I have a quote from the book that I'll try to read on Mike here that I think kind of gets this idea across. Um, this is our protagonist, Harry Pendle, the, tailor, the titular tailor of Panama, describing one of his suits to a client of his. A suit for me, Mickey, it's not a drunken scream. It's line, it's form, it's rock of eye, it's silhouette. It's the understatement that tells the world what it needs to know about you and no more. If somebody notices a suit of mine, I'm embarrassed because there must be something wrong with it. My suits aren't about improving your appearance or about making you the prettiest boy in the room. My suits are not confrontational. They hint, they imply, they encourage people to come to you. They help improve your life, pay your debts, be an influence in the world. I think what Lecre is trying to say about, about suits and about men's fashion is that it's about conformity. It's about kind of being the most exemplary conformist that you can be rather than trying to be someone who really stands out, which I think is the goal of other types of fashion. And um, that kind of brings me to the last, I think, point about, about what makes this book unique or what makes it special to me, um, which is that it's a book about infidelity. But infidelity in, I think, kind of a different way than we typically see it portrayed. It doesn't show infidelity as an act of passion or lust or even like attraction or, or the idea of like falling in love with someone outside of your marriage. But it's, it's a very sort of le carré image of just like betrayal and, and specifically the idea of betraying your marriage and your, interim, your intimacy with your wife to conformity and to patriarchy. And I think that's kind of the heart of why, of why Harry Pendle is a great character and why this is a book about infidelity is that he's, his marriage is falling apart because he's most interested not in, in a romance with another person, but in kind of conforming and satisfying this patriarchy around him that's, that's recruited him to be a spy. Well, well, so going through the three points you mentioned, first, the point of place. I mean, you're right. I mean, this is the carry is very much writing to the specific time of 1990s Panama. What I struck me more was how he was writing also about intelligence and the role of Great Britain in the world in 1996. Like, it feels very particular. It's like 1996, tail end of the John Major government. And, you know, like, a lot of the writing is very clearly of that specific time and political context. And, you know, the questions of, you know, what is the role of sort of spy agencies in this new environment. The second thing you mentioned is tailoring, and you use, the word you use is conformity. I don't, I don't agree with that use of the word conform. I think what, what Harry is describing in that quote about tailoring is creating the image of the person. You know, his tailor-made suits, which exaggerate someone's strengths, hide someone's weaknesses. They don't stand out and they don't scream because they don't have to. They make the person seem like they're not wearing something ostentations when they are wearing an outfit. That means they can get extra credit from the bank or go to the best restaurant in Panama. And the third point about it is infidelity. I mean, I think well, I wasn't. I didn't quite get that theme. I got more the sense of the creation of images and the creation of illusions and the contrast of reality. And Pendle is a character who's, you know, he at one point says, you know, I'm actually going to pull up the quote. Everything in the world is true if you vent it hard enough and love the person it's for. And that kind of feeds into tailoring. John le Carre described this in an interview where a tailor is not really a liar, but they are telling a story about the person who's wearing the suit. and. Harry does that but to the ninth degree, creating a lie about himself and then the intelligence he sells and the people he and to the people he brings in. 
So um, I have not read this novel, but uh, I have done some some reading about it. And what I found interesting and what some critics found interesting and uh, controversial is that uh, Harry Pendle is is a, he's a Jew, uh, a, a British Jewish man who is an expatriate. Um, and we can talk more about the controversy that arises later, but I was wondering if uh, portray- the portrayal of Jewishness struck you in any particular way, or if this is just a background detail of the character that you didn't find notable. I feel like it's a background detail that one could one could read into it that by changing his background from you know his uncle being an East London Jewish refugee in tailoring, you know, in London to. Um, you know, tailoring in the West End. Arguably, the subtext there is rejection of his Jewishness, but I don't know. It, it felt like maybe that subtext was there, but it didn't seem like he was a character in rejection of his his Jewish background. And in the film, it seems as an incidental. Barely. I mean, I think his kids happen to go to a Jewish school or something he, is a part of it, which is and he drops one word of Yiddish. Yeah, which is actually kind of absurd sort of interpretation of the uh-huh. material because his Jewishness is kind of a background trait of his that I think he is very much trying to, to to get away from in Panama and the impression I got his wife is like the daughter of very Christian American civil engineers who have worked on the canal for a long time and is part of this sort of almost kind of missionary class that she's kind of descended from and the sense I get in the novel is that Harry Pendle is totally just ignored or kind of hidden his 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 Jewish ancestry to just blend in with this Christian identity um so I think it's kind of absurd that the movie the one reference it does have is that his kids would go to a Jewish school. It's like, what? But to get it, getting ahead. But what did you, I mean, is there controversy around this, Caleb? Is it um, seen as anti-Semitic or? Yeah. So before we talk about this film, I kind of want to talk about the afterlife of the novel itself, which again, I haven't read, but what's interesting about it, because I think this is a fairly well-respected novel, but it's it's not sort of held in sort of the pantheon of, of the Lacare greats, but it did spark a pretty bitter feud with another titan of English literature, uh, namely Salman Rushdie. Um, and so for a little bit of context for those unfamiliar with Rushdie, um, in 1989, he published The Satanic Verses, which is a, a frankly beautiful novel uh, about immigration and religion and the sacrifices that immigrants make to conform to new societies. And a, a, a major character in that novel is the Prophet Muhammad, um, and uh, we won't go into the whole controversy, but... Um, I, I just want to be on mic saying I also love that book, um, be, largely because uh, if we got a fatwa on us, Caleb, that would be great press for this podcast. Huge. Huge. Get that heat. Uh, we'll have to cut all of that out. Anyway. Um, we, we can keep some of the fatwa joke, right? This, this is... Sure. Great, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, uh, this was an extremely controversial novel. Obviously, depictions of the Prophet Muhammad are banned, and it, explicitly, the novel deals with his direct interactions with with Satan. So, very controversial. It earned him a fatwa uh, that uh, forced him into hiding and led to the assassinations of several of his translators, uh, including a. a a pretty horrific terrorist attack on a Turkish hotel that killed 29 people. But in so this uh, raised obviously a lot of international attention and a lot of conversation about 
the limits of free speech. And in 1989, John le Carré gave a speech, uh, a private speech, but essentially uh, he, you know, sympathized with Salman Rushdie being forced to go into hiding, but kind of said that there was no international standard of free speech, um, that Rushdie antagonized a great religion and specifically religious extremists who refused to uh, hear criticism of that great religion and what in God's name did he expect? Uh, so that was the the situation in 1989 and that did not endear him particularly to Salman Rushdie who was living in, in hiding. So in 1996, uh, the Tailor of Panama comes out. As we've, as we've mentioned, uh, the character of, of Harry Pendle, the titular Tailor of Panama, is Jewish and a critic for the New York Times named Norman Rush, in a otherwise pretty glowing review, um, took exception to the character of Harry Pendle. He likened Pendle to to Judas uh, in the fact that he is a sort of a, a nationless Jew who sells out a saintly, uh, the um, Lacare. Uh, explicitly calls the president of Panama in the novel a saint, a political figure to an imperial power for money, and also brings up the backstory of his uncle Benny, who was a Holocaust survivor who was only able to survive the Second World War uh, by collaborating with the Nazis. So this is this is a criticism in an otherwise well-reviewed book, but um, it did cause a little bit of hubbub. And for the next year, John le Carré kind of went around the major presses and kind of complained about the thought police and PC culture and how he was getting canceled for, for a full year after this review comes out. Uh, so in 1997, Salman Rushdie wrote a letter to The Guardian and and called out John le Carré's uh, supposed hypocrisy, um, where he is, you know, crying about PC culture, canceling him. Whereas he sort of, he left Salman Rushdie to rot for his own religious provocations. Uh, and this led to a flurry of letters over the next week in The Guardian, where they really went at each other. And I don't think either of them come off well. They both seem uh, like uh, arrogant pricks. Um, but uh, Salman Rushdie calls John le Carre a pompous ass and a dunce. Uh, who was the only person who's willing to give his own work positive reviews. Uh, and John le Carre, in turn, uh, said that Salman Rushdie was uh, an arrogant, self-righteous colonialist with a martyrdom complex. Uh, and uh, they continued to not be on speaking terms until 2012. So I don't think any of them come off very well there, but it's sort of a, a very classic war of egos. And it's a great read if you want to go through it. I do find it kind of always funny you know, Rushdie has, I love the satanic verses. I, I made sort of jokes about it earlier, but like, I, I love that book. It's an incredible book. I think Rushdie is like a super insightful and gifted novelist. Um, I do find it very funny in that for all the very legitimate fights that he has gotten in about free speech, he also manages to often get into very petty ones around mm -hmm. the specifics of it with people. Um, and so I don't know. Someone needs to make like a like a two D fighting game. That's just like everybody. That <laughs> like you would have um you'd have Cat Stevens in there. You would have John Le Carre. There's there's potential there. Um, yeah. And but he he insults their character, which I always which disappoints me. But Le Carre is not above it. He he appears to have basically done the same here as well. 
so I, I didn't just bring this up because I love drama, though I do. Um, but I, I do think that this, this controversy and this media firestorm that occurs in the wake of this novel kind of contributes to the stripping away of the Jewish identity of Harry Pendle in the film, which we're going to get to, because um, I think that has a pretty serious impact on the final product. Um, now I want to talk about John Borman, who we're going to return to on this podcast. But this is one of the most, this is one of the weirdest and most fascinating careers of all time. Um, so his his first film was sort of a, a kind of a knockoff of um, the Beatles' uh, Hard Day's Night, except it's uh, the Dave Clark Five, which was sort of another of the British Invasion bands that never really uh, obviously rose to the same level. But that was his breakout uh, film. And then he sort of made mostly very good films, including uh, uh, Point Break in 1967. Point, which, point Blank, which is... A fucking masterpiece. Like, which is just like so psychedelic. I Yeah, just a big recommend, but Point Blank for anyone. Leo, I think this is a movie you would dig a ton if you haven't had a chance to catch it. Um, but all our readers, it's like our listeners, what the fuck? We, we don't know anyone who reads. Um, <laughs> point Blank is like if like David Lynch made a Jason Bourne movie or something like it. It's awesome. Um, Fuck it. Fucking rules. And I think he's, he peaks, uh, critically, critically and commercially in 1972 with deliverance, um, which another, another great movie. And then he parlays that success to make, I think two of the most reviled films of all time. Zardoz, which I have seen starring Sean Connery, the aforementioned Zardoz is great. I think it's execrable. A truly <laughs> an unspeakable piece of shit. What? It's... Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm going to have to get a on this one. I think it's it's a horny teenager's acid trip, and it is... Sounds, I'm sold. I'm in. Like <laughs> It's awful. And, I've, and in 1974, I think he truly reaches rock bottom uh, with The Exorcist Part 2, um, which is similarly regarded as one of the worst films of all time. And I want to read a quote from William Friedkin, who directed the original Exorcist. Um, He describes watching uh, a very early screening and said, uh, quote, I thought it was as bad as seeing a traffic accident in the street. It was horrible. It's just a stupid mess made by a dumb guy. John Borman by name, somebody who should be nameless. Um, and William Freak, I'm sorry, but he there's another Exorcist sequel coming out. I'll see if I can find it. And like William Friedkin, even at age like 95 or whatever he is now, uh-huh. is still just like, like fuck you if anyone brings up an Exorcist remake or sequel. Um, he should be. I mean, no, I I mean I I love him, but uh, people were saying there is there's talk of a reboot uh, coming out, and someone asked him if he was involved at all, and said there's a rumor on quote. This is William Friedkin quote. There's a rumor on IMDb that I'm involved in a new version of The Exorcist. This isn't a rumor. It's a flat out lie. There isn't enough money or motivation in the world to get me to do this. Um, what a king. I think that kind of cuts to the core of John Borman is that he swings big and either he connects or he just completely falls on his face. And that continued into the into the 90s. Uh, leading up to the making of this film. Uh, he's mostly pretty quiet. He only makes 
three, but I'm only going to talk about two. The first is a, a, a white saviory drama about the pro-democracy movement in uh, then Burma, now Myanmar, called Beyond Rangoon, which came out in 1995 and was pretty ignored critically. Um, but then in 1998, uh, he makes a black and white Irish crime film called The General, in uh, starring Brendan Gleeson, who appears in this film, uh, and he uh, won Best Director at the Cannes Fin- Film Festival uh, in 1998. So even at this point, 33 years into his career, he was still sort of pinballing between disaster to roaring success. I should also say he was again nominated for Best Director in 1987 for Hope and Glory, which is a good movie. I like it. Anyway, that brings us to 2001 and The Tailor of Panama, um, which uh, was written uh, by John le Carré and John Borman together. Uh, They wrote the screenplay. Uh, John le Carré was a close collaborator with John Borman throughout the process. That's what I have. We can talk about the film now. Before we go into it, I want to say something interesting is that when you asked me to come on to this, I was surprised Pierce Brosnan was in this Mm -hmm. because... Allegedly, when Pierce Brosnan signed on to play James Bond, he was not allowed to wear a tuxedo in any other film. So apparently, the Thomas Crown Affair, for example, they had to like do some creative costuming to get around him at a black tie event. Now, to be f- fair, this is something I did a lot of digging on the internet. I found the source, which credits the director's mm-hmm. commentary to this. I feel like a lot of these details are still rumor, possibly because stars don't release the text of their contract online. But... I mean, the contrast between playing another spy and being James Bond was such that in 1986, I think, when they were casting for the replacement of Roger Moore, who was too old to be sleeping with women who were Mm -hmm. old enough to be his daughter, um, they basically, um, he was starring as Remington Steele in the series Remington Steele. Because of the speculation he was going to be Bond, Remington Steele got another series renewal. And because of that, the producers of Bond said, no, you're not going to be Remington Steele on the small screen and Bond on big screen. And that's why they went with Timothy Dalton instead. Interesting. And because of all that drama, which I think is widely speculated, I was surprised he was allowed to play another British spy who's very similar to Bond. Mm -hmm. And also that he would, because a lot of actors who play James Bond are nervous about doing it because they don't want to be typecast. So Michael Caine turned the world down in 1968 or 9 because he... or 7 or 8 because he was, had starred in several spy films, didn't want to be typecast as a British spy. And other actors do projects to get away from that role, which is often cited as a reason Sean Connery starred in Zardoz. He wanted to avoid being typecast. Well, or even like, uh, I think all of Daniel Craig's non-Bond work has been like a pretty strong departure for the most part with... Um... Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, or definitely Benoit Blanc in Knives Out. Or Logan Lucky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, hell yeah. Great, Great movie. movie. Yeah. Is now a good time to talk about James Bond? Because it's kind of the specter of this whole movie, right? Is that <sighs> And and of Lucari this... generally. We've brought it up several times in the past, but I think this is this is the most explicit connection to Bond in that yeah. Pierce Brosnan is this isn't at the end of his Bond run, it's right in the middle. Um because his last Bond is Die Another Day in 2002. Yep. Um, so the year after. So he's not done playing Bond when he comes in. But yes, no, I think this is the film that deals most explicitly explicitly with the legacy of Bond, not just in in entertainment, but in international politics. Well, it's a novel that's aware of the reputation of spies. At one point, there was an explicit reference to 007 at the end of the novel. But I feel like in both the novel and the film, 
even if characters don't mention James Bond, they kind of know who spies are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I th- I think it's too on the nose. I mean, it's it's kind of really cool casting to have Pierce Brosnan in this movie. His performance is always like halfway very good and then halfway like not so good. I don't think Pierce Brosnan is a great actor. I think he's a pretty decent Bond. He kind of ranks high in my personal Bonds, but um, in my bail Bonds or whatever. I can't think of a good pun, but like I think he's a pretty, I think he's often a good Bond, but he's um, he's not a great actor. He's kind of a poor singer in Mamma Mia. Um, his <laughs> art is awful. If anyone's ever seen his paintings, it's like George W. Bush level artwork. Should we get into the movie? Let's get into it. We open in MI6 headquarters, Pierce Brosnan, furrowed brow looking out a window as his boss and spy master played by david Heyman, mm-hmm. who's uh just has a really thick scottish brogue and i think is in some ways kind of intended as like a successor to or kind of a reimagining of um of toby jones's character in tinker taylor of that same kind of like dogmatics sort of scotsman at the head of the of the uk spies well he's mentioned as scottish in the novel yeah, he's he's very Scottish in that. It's like a big discussion, like repeated a lot. I don't know what I don't know what is getting at exactly with that. I don't know if he has like a bias that we're if if the anti Semitism was just like a, a red herring for his actual like deeply seated hatred of the Scots. <laughs> I don't think it'd be that Scots are very easy archetypes to to write, if that makes sense. For sure. Like it, it does a lot of the work for you. Yeah. So uh Pierce Brazen is told that he's gonna be stationed in Panama. Um he's shocked, he's upset, he's like Panama? Panama sucks until he hears that Panama is filled with like money launderers and drug dealers and the canal is this big topic that they have to figure out and then you see Pierce Brosnan like look to the camera and go like oh Panama and like this little twinkle in his eye (laughs) so the film opens with a shot of MI6 headquarters and that just I had weird deja vu from the Brosnan Bond films because we off all of the films have scenes at MI in the MI6 building yeah and just like the room, it, it's visually, frankly, too similar for comfort. I'm, I'm surprised they used that opening shot. So you drop parallels to the Brosnan Bond films, but I I also felt a similar sense of deja vu. But was actually with uh, the Richard Burton spy who came in from the cold. I think this is this is a doubling of the scene where Alec Lemus meets Control and is told after having his own network blown uh, that he's not allowed to come in yet. Except in this case, uh, Pierce Brosnan's character is not a quarter of the man that Alec Lemus is, and neither is our dogmatic Scotsman. No, I, I thought this was a bizarre restaging. Um, I also think the scene looks like shit. It's got the nice Comic Sans font <laughs> running in the bottom for the credits. <laughs> that font annoyed me. I was shocked to look at it. I had to do like a double take when I yeah, saw that. Yeah, same. Yeah. And then we, we jump into the into the opening credits and i well like every good movie it it has one scene and then it gives you title cards as subtitles underneath telling you the important stuff uh-huh the panama canal was designed by the americans and is held in the in panama but meanwhile in panama and then cut to legitimately something that maybe every great movie actually should have in it which is jeffrey fucking rush stepping onto a sunny sidewalk in a panama hat and a white suit yeah that text annoyed me, and I'm like, you could have worked it into that scene. Like, make that exposition scene, like, an additional 30 seconds longer. I feel like most audiences don't need to know who built the Panama Canal. I feel like most people know that. Yeah, because the movie is not really about the canal very much. 
No. Less so even than the book. I mean, the movie has, I think, not that much footage or scenery around the canal or doesn't really incorporate it very well. Like, just make a choice, John Borman. Make it a movie about the canal and have characters talk about that and the techniques of and its history of who owned it first. Or just just make it a movie about Panama, which is, I think, what he actually wants to do here. Yeah, or just have it like a minute-long scene of like driving through Panama and someone explains it to you on the ride. It, it, it felt like an opt-out because they weren't sure in editing how to get that done. So like, let's just have some air, very bad aerial shots and some Comic Sans subtitles. Yeah, so we meet Harry Pendle. We meet his, his family. He drops his kid off. Can we talk about the intro shot of him? Because um, that sure. frustrated me to see him. I like the idea of opening on him working. I felt the fact that it was sped up footage from making a suit. I want to talk about this also. Yeah, I I rented this movie on YouTube and I had to I I I had to check if I had the playback fucked up if I put it at like one point two five or something. I like uh, the image of John Le Carre as a suit maker a lot. He is someone yeah who is very careful and creates something grand and intricate. But actually, each individual stitch is more revealing of his character and his world than the finished product is. And it's, it is the process of stitching is what makes John le Carre's worlds rich and, and beautiful. And uh, to quote the great 20th century cultural critic Scooby-Doo, this sped up footage of Jeffrey Rush cutting out fabric made me go, because um, <laughs> it is so clearly antithetical to what John Le Carre does best, which is take his time in the stitching. We speed straight through it. There, yeah. There's one. There's one touch I want to give this movie, or like a, a choice that Borman made in in this opening shot, which is that he shows the the sweatshop that kind of operates mm-hmm. behind Harry Pendle's tailor and all these like in the book they're like primarily like indigenous women that work in it, and I think at least visually Borman's tried to kind of capture or recreate that who are doing all the kind of grimy work while Pendle gets to be suave and comfortable and cool and knowledgeable in the front cozy office. And I don't know. I, I like that. That's a detail that, that, that gets incorporated in the opening shot and is kind of revealing towards Borman's whole relationship to like Panama and like this, this movie as poverty porn, which I think it often kind of slips into. Yeah. But he, um, Drops his kids off at school and then goes to meet his his banker, played by John Polito, which is in brownface, the first of many. Yeah. yeah. Oh wait, he's yeah. in brownface. Yep. Yeah, John. Oh, well, I, I mean, John Polito is deeply olive toned man, but uh, he's an Italian man. <laughs> yeah, I know that's the fun. Of it. Like, uh, it's a deep. It's like a deep Hollywood cut of like. In the 60s, if you're Mediterranean, you can just kind of play anything. You look suave enough. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is ugly. I, I don't think this is a particularly interesting scene because this is where his farm is introduced and that's not barely covered in any detail. But I, I think the, the one device that is introduced in this scene that is worth talking about, which is the cuts to interiority. Yes. As Harry Pendle is is measuring John Polito. Uh, we have a sharp, sharp cut and see now um, the banker is, is in, in his underwear and uh, Jeffrey Rush is talking shit um, before snapping back. So we go for just a yeah. moment into the headspace of Harry Pendle. And I kind of want to know your thoughts on this because Lacare's novels are so interior and that's often hard to translate on film. 
I think this really doesn't work at all, but maybe you disagree. I kind of like it. I don't, I mean, the Taylor Phantom is an internal book, but in a much more conversational kind of jokey tone. I mean, mm-hmm. this character, his uncle, Bunny, who I mentioned is played by Harold Pinter in the film, and is kind of the mentor to Harry Pendle and teaches him how to lie and how to kind of con people and, and, and trick them. Um, he does show up as like a conversational figure in the book. So it's a real like devil on one shoulder, angel on the other shoulder kind of reduction of interiority. So I think the I think the movie is generally playing with what it's given. So when I went in the banker scene, I started seeing into cuts into reality. For a minute, I thought, oh, this actually could be quite interesting. And I think I think the problem with the film is not that it or I mean, some of them work, some of them don't work. The problem is it doesn't do enough of them. And I feel like towards the last about halfway through the movie, it gives up on that device. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's uh particularly cutting to his uncle i i thought that could have been quite an interesting relationship and use there and it could have built up and they just don't do it and i i think that's not to john borden's credit that he just stopped doing that no I, i i agree i think he needed to choose either to express interiority via external maybe talking through a port talking to a portrait with no response or to fully commit to Uncle Benny is there all the time watching over him and he chooses a middle path and it's it just it doesn't work. Yeah, but the, I think the path he chose in that scene could have worked. Like him being in the yes. yeah, yeah. in the tailoring booth with Pierce Brosnan, that could have worked if you just stuck with it. They just don't stick with it. But the crux of it is that Jeffrey Rush owes money, that Harry Pendle yeah. is actually like has has purchased this rice farm that he has no money to pay for. He's 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 put up his own shop as collateral. It's it's a clumsy plot device in the book, and it's a clumsy plot device here. Of he's under financial straits and uh, and is is hard pressed for cash. Basically, um, he runs back to his tailor shop to start the day, and who's there but handsome old Pierce fucking Brosnan? This is a great. Int- I mean, we've been introduced to the character, but I think this is a great introduction to the character's character. Because from the very first minute, he's making really disgusting <laughs> remarks about yeah. every woman he sees. And it's clear he's the exact kind of uh, Etonian snobbish brute that kind of resurfaces throughout uh, Lakari's works. And I think talking about Pierce Brosnan is also at the heart of what Bond is, which is that he is sort of a self-mythologizing prick. Um and I think this is I think this is a good character and a good performance and a nice introduction to him. And I think it's a good introduction because I think you do get a sense of sort of the class dynamic here. He mentions how mm-hmm. you tailored for my father. It's something in the novel that comes up. He's aware he views, you know, Andrew Osnard as sort of the kind of entitled rich prick who never pays his bills. That was the bane of existence in the UK or his imagined existence in the UK. Um, and I think that sort of entitled way Brosnan walks in that scene works quite well mm-hmm. in the in the scene um i feel like Brosnan is sort of doing his bond but by at least about 20 percent or so turning up the assholeness because in his bond films he's often a, a jerk but this time he's more of a jerk and he's more sexist and he's more crude and he's just less good as a spy yeah no there's a real triumph to this movie of having what if what if James Bond wasn't the star of a James Bond movie, but yeah. was just like a fucking asshole that you had to deal with? Yeah. Who, 
just wanted to like fuck every female and just like basically how impossible it is to have like meaningful relationships when you have this asshole showing up everywhere. We'll do real spy work. Yeah, I mean, and like, and this character he's playing, Andrew Osnard, you're right, Caleb, is just like a total just in height, entitled, I, I, like, cad is like too soft of a word. Like, I thought of- uh, He thinks he's a cad, uh, he's, he, but he's- He's a, he's like a black heart, you know? Like, uh-huh. he's just like one of those, like, douchebags from a Jane Austen novel who just like- A rake. Just, just, lo- just a rake. I, but like, I don't know, like, a, like, like, less desirable, you know? Like, he really, he's really just like a classic- He has no charisma. But he does have charisma. That's like the frustrating thing is like Andrew Ostard like has game and is charming and is able to convince people that he is this James Bond type that they all kind of want to be a part of. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. He's seductive, which I think has mm-hmm. always been Pierce Brosnan's kind of greatest strength as a Bond, personally. I agree. I think he's the most kind of sexually attractive one. Yeah, he's a very strong sort of sexual charisma. And he arguably uses that in the, in the film. I feel like I can't tell if Harry is panicked because of this guy claims my you know mr brainwave tale of him or he seems almost seducted to the idea of a legacy customer yeah well i mean it's both right because harry pendle's backstory as we learn in this scene is that he claims to be this tailor who was educated in england and is part of this great pedigree and learned tailoring from his old mentor and that's all just false harry pendle is this is this convict a former convict he went to prison for arson he learned tailoring while in prison and then fled to Panama and has kind of reinvented himself as a as a distinguished British expat, but is but is just a con man. But he loves his dream of himself. He loves this kind of fiction that he's portrayed. And so I think that's why that's why Osnard, why Pierce Brosnan seduces him so well by saying, I used to be a member of your old shop in the in England. Like I know your mentor, like I'm a part of your dream that you talk about. Yeah, and there's something interesting about this very, very particularly about, you know, he's a British expat Panama, and I feel like a lot of his business relies on the Savile Road name. That seems to be part of the brand. It's a silly business decision. That sense of, like, being a British expat, sometimes people, some people, I feel like, use that, try to use that reputation to get ahead in some ways. And Osnard's doing that, but just sure. a more audacious. Yeah, um, so Osnard reveals that he knows uh, that Harold has made it all up, and he blackmails him, not so much into full spy work, but into showing him around and showing him who the power players in the Panamanian political scene are. Harry takes Osnard to uh, to the club and, uh, and shows him around post-handover Panama. Um, and and who, who, who do we meet here? I mean, it's... <sighs> It's just kind of like a gallery of douchebags, and none of them are actually, I think, that important to the book, you know? Like, it's sort Mm -hmm. of a scene where you want to be like, oh, we meet this guy, he does this, so you're going to want to remember his face. Like, the book gives it a really easy layup of, like, if you want to make a dense kind of plotty, brawling character drama, you can get to it in this part. But instead, it's more like you just kind of, like, meet a bunch of just, like rich drug money assholes basically like they all just kind of feel like rejects from like a narcos season or something yeah in uh i think and the one actor who i think is actually hispanic i'm forgetting his name but is uh uh, a prominent figure in uh breaking bad yeah it's mark margolis is in it for uh like a scene and a half uncle hector yes from from breaking bad i don't have anything to say about his performance he's not not the most yeah. egregious thing, but doesn't have anything to do. 
I guess like by virtue of being a Latinx person playing Latinx characters that gets him like <laughs> best supporting actor in the whole film. I don't know. So let's get let's get to that. The other the, the one major figure that we meet in this scene who is <laughs> specifically not Latinx. And, we uh, all just fucking put our like we all just like put our head <laughs> in our hands uh, like before we even said his name. Uh Brendan Gleason. The Irish legend. I love this actor. I hate this performance. I hate everything about this. Um, In Brownface, uh, what is his character's name? His Um, name is Mickey Abraxas. And again, it's kind of, it's this sort of cool milieu of of expats that Lecaray is trying to build in Panama is that Mickey Abraxas is actually like a Greek, is like like an ethnically Greek dude, but grew up in uh Panama. And so it's this idea that he's got a bit of both in him. Um, Instead, it's just none of fucking, that conveys in the just, film. <laughs> it's just fucking Brendan Gleeson doing a like an awful Spanish accent. It's, it's terrible with with dyed brown hair and probably eight levels of you know spray on yeah. tanner. It's awful. No, and it's like, egregious. I mean, he just goes from being like, "Well, hello, Harry Pendle, my tailor, it's cabron," <laughs> and it's like, "God <laughs> damn it!" Like. This is yeah no this is disgraceful Mm -hmm. (laughs) from everyone involved. Um, But uh, yeah, Mickey Abraxas is a former member of the um, the nascent Nicaraguan left who uh, was disappeared um, by uh, the right wing government and is now a shadow of his former self. He's a drunk. He's obese. Uh, he's, he looks like shit and doesn't have the courage to sort of leave hive society behind and make his own life. But he's, he's a principleless mess. Yeah. Harry loves him and it's not really clear why. I mean, they've, they've got this backstory that I think is kind of crucial and that, that Harry Pendle kind of knew him when he was a more idealistic and admirable dude. And it was always going to admire and respect him for that, but that he is in today's day, like he just. He just basically gets drunk and embarrasses himself by occasionally yelling at all the rich people who uh, collaborated with the government that that imprisoned and beat him. Yeah, I mean, I think there's one reading of it when he's introduced in a novel where Osnard insults him and Harry defends him. It sort of feels like Harry's also defending himself. It's like when someone says your friends aren't cool and that makes you think you're lame, so you defend your friend's coolness. It's that, but for heroism. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, because I mean, it's uh, there's a real sense of trauma in the book um, yeah. that both the Noriega government and the U.S. invasion to depose him were both these really traumatic, really brutal events that just hurt a lot of people in around Harry Pendle's life, but didn't actually really affect him personally. Um, the movie doesn't really touch on super well. It's got one kind of flashback sequence where we see Pendle's uh, secretary and, and Mickey Abraxas getting beaten. I think that's one of the best parts of the movie, actually. And that was an example of, yeah. again, interiority being indicated but not developed. But it's this, and, and that, these, and that yeah. these kind of traumatized leftists have sort of gotten complacent and have just be, kind of gotten older and just sort of sold out and become just sort of middle class bureaucrats or, or civil servants of, of, of what is still a pretty corrupt regime. Yeah, I don't know. This scene is lame. It should be funner. I don't know. It, like, it's a re- it's a fun scene in the book. It's just not a visually interesting club. I mean, you know, when I thought of the Colonial Club, I thought, yeah. I thought like this, like very like you know, old colonial terraced 
pool and this just looks like oh a nightclub and yeah. like a skyscraper it's like this just isn't interesting to look at I, i'm not enjoying yeah. being here i kind of i've it, we have to move on and talk about the plot of this movie but i i've i've mentioned the opening scene looking like shit and and this scene also looks like shit i think this movie looks like shit i think the lighting is terrible um it's so i i, I look up I can't remember who who shot it, but it's a, a regular John Borman collaborator. Philip Russolo. Philip Russolo. So they've worked together a lot, but I think this is, I mean, this is just a low effort. It's so, it's overlit. There's not a shadow in sight. At one point, like, there's mention of natural light actually, you know, flooding into um, Harry Pendle's office, but there's no, you can't tell any difference in the scene itself. Everything looks like a soundstage. This movie looks terrible. It's really a bummer because this is a an opportunity to differentiate Le Carre from the sort of foggy streets of London and Berlin for which he is so famous. And John Borman fucking shanks it. Ugly movie. And I found that at one point compares itself to like Casablanca about the heroes. It's like that's a good opportunity to be like let's evoke that but be modern in Panama in like two thousand. Mm-hmm. And like oh no, let's just not do that. The couple of Panama, the couple of Casablanca nods are like so fucking egregious and like talk about calling your shot and just fucking <laughs> missing. That's like you're playing darts at a bar and you, you you don't even get under the board like it lands in someone else's drink and you have to buy them a new one afterwards or something like it's just, it just sucks. Um, and then we get this Mickey Abraxas is too drunk. Brendan Gleeson's too drunk. They drive him out down Poverty Row or like what like that's what I called it just now. But like. They just drive him down this street of uh, just like destitute Latin America fucking anywhere. You know, it's like it's there's no sense of geography to it. It's just a street someplace in the world that is just exclusively filled with like impoverished families and prostitutes, apparently, you know, like it's it's just. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's it's lazy and like just fucking kind of infuriating. This is the point where. You talk about Harry defending his friends and, and their coolness. This is where he lets Osnard know, oh, no, 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 actually, Mickey Abraxas isn't, you know, a drunken fool. He's, you know, he is a hero. He's still the leader of the left. Um, and this is where we're introduced to the supposed silent resistance. Yeah, basically, Harry Pendle is, gets kind of a moment and uh, a flash of inspiration and makes up that there's a, actually a super well-organized, really disciplined, silent opposition. This kind of shadow revolution that's just ready to to take over Panama. And if you blink, his uncle's in the back shaking his head, like saying, "Don't say this." Yeah, that I I, I mm-hmm. do like that shot a lot because he's 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 kind of I he's, do. He's, I do. you realize yeah. he's been sitting in that shot longer than you realize. He just slinks out of the shadows. Um, could have used more of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andrew Osnard takes us to the British Embassy. I like this scene actually. I think this is kind of a decent one of all the collective like fuck yous between the British bureaucrats. He has pretty good chemistry with Catherine McCormick, who plays a glamorous and kind of standoffish woman that works at the at the British Embassy. You can buy the effect because she seems like he knows he's an asshole. But like, yeah, yeah, she's she's simultaneously repulsed and attracted yeah. to him. Yeah, but he he gives them this pitch and they kind of take the bait. And he says that, well, you don't know about the silent opposition and. Which really doesn't exist for anyone more than just a word that Harry Pendle made up in his cab last night. Um, but it's already like enticing people. It's already getting them excited, and that they're already it gives it gives Andrew Osnard just a greedy asshole, basically ammo and and reputation and clout with them. And what kind of follows is uh the movie's plot moves pretty quickly. I think like it's sort of just escalating 
lies and stories from from Harry Pendle, um, insistence that he has kind of heard new information or new intel in the tailoring booth that he doesn't actually have, and Andrew Ostner getting really excited about it. I wanted to talk about the motel scene, unless there's more. No, let's do it. So they, yes. yeah, they meet at this. They made at this one of those like pay by the hour motels, which I don't know. It's kind of a that's kind of a well sketched location, I think, within the movie. So Andrew Osnard invites uh, Jeffrey Rush to meet him, to Harry Pendle to meet him at this pay by the hour motel, and they're on a vibrating bed. Which I kind of love this bit of business for Pierce Brosnan of just he keeps putting coins in the coin operated vibrator underneath the bed, so it's just like obnoxiously shaking while he's grilling Jeffrey Rush about uh, about his clients and about his... I think this might be one of the best scenes in the movie, partly because it's a scene that feels like a decision was made and was like fought through and carried through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I think it's it's funny. It's offbeat. It's weird. It's a bit odd. It has a real f- sense of the place. And not just plotting, but the dialogue of, of Pierce Brosnan watching porn as he's out of the corner of his eye and just saying, ooh, look at those yeah. tits. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it, fe- it's, it feels like a, a real character choice where I feel like the rest of this film and most of these other characters, and we can get into this, feel so stripped of, of personality. Also, I think this is- Osnard, again, is the only character with real defined traits, which is that he's a horny little toad. Um, and it works. So I think this is the last appearance of Uncle Benny appears on a TV for a split second. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Telling Harry not to uh, mention the um, canal scheme. And I'm like, I think that's the last time we see him. Unless there's another point in the film he comes up. I think he comes up one more time. One more time. Yeah. Um, I, I also like this scene because I mentioned earlier that I think this is a novel about infidelity. Mm-hmm. Like how much of Perry, Harry Pendle's kind of inner conflict is about lying and dishonesty to his wife. And I think this scene really gets that in this movie because they're not, it's I, it's not a sexual scene on its own. I don't think it's intended to suggest there's any kind of attraction between these two men, but there's a certain degree of kind of, of seduction and I, it moves around a lot of the decorations or ornamentation of like an illicit meetup, being in this play by the hour motel, having the pornography on the TV I don't I don't know. I just think it's really like Borman is kind of keyed into like that this novel is about what what is so desirable outside of a marriage that would make you want to lie to a person you love. And I mm-hmm. think the scene gets that and is playing with it and it gets me really excited for what the rest of this movie could have been, basically. Yeah, I think it's the high point of the film. Yeah. 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 And it's all it, it goes down from really here. fast from here. So um Wait, the president scene is before this, right? Yeah, anything you yeah. wanted to note on that, Leo? Well, I think that's an interesting scene because it's kind of an interesting contrast between how he views himself and the reality of it. Yes. Like, the president barely speaks to him. He's like, just give me the pants. Give me the waistcoat. And, like, there's the guy... Also, you suck at your job. Your pants are yeah. bad. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because this, this is, like, how clients actually view him. Like, the president, no. He's just your tailor. He's my tailor. I'm not going to tell you about the canal. Uh, Lyndon Johnson didn't tell his tailor about a strategy for passing the Civil Rights Act when he was yelling at him for 15 minutes about how he needs more space in the groin and for his knife. <laughs> <laughs> this is about when Jamie Lou Curtis starts kind of showing up more and more in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. She's well cast, I think. Like, this character is actually kind of a more serious, hard-nosed, and sort of impressive person than her husband is. Like, he's a he's a likable tailor, but she is an engineer on the that works on the canal and has 
a mundane but kind of pretty important job. And and I think she's well cast in this role because Jamie Lee Curtis has kind of such a uh there's like a certain like kind of androgynous beauty to her, I think, and that she's like and a lot of her kind of defining roles are about playing serious minded or kind of tougher women. I mean, Halloween kind of being maybe the apex or the, like the urtext of it all. But I, I I mean the character's really underwritten. This performance sucks. Yeah. Which is not given enough to do. Yeah. It relies fully on the reputation of Jamie Lee Curtis as sort of tough, serious, not no nonsense because she's actually a very funny woman, but um, she has an inherent weight to her. Um, But beyond that, I think you're absolutely right, Leo. There's just, there's no substance to this performance. She doesn't really have any chemistry with Jeffrey Rush. I don't think it doesn't make sense for them to be together. It doesn't, it's not clear. She has a, you know, capital I, capital J, important job, but it's never made clear what she does or why she does it or why it's important. It's clear that she's richer than he is, but she's a blank slate, a a hole of a person that they shoved Jamie Lee Curtis into. And there's, it's still just a hole. In the novel, she is, she's actually more developed as a character. You know, she's a very, she's described as sort of evangelical Christianity. I don't necessarily think LaCarrie meant that in terms of like socially conservative, though she somewhat is. It's more that utopian zeal that she feels about her boss. And like, Mm -hmm. she's very passionate, like, no, the people running the canal are not corrupt. You know, this is our canal. We want to protect this legacy, which is just not established in the film. At all. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cruddy. I don't know. It's like, it's cruddy. Um, but but this intelligence that Harry Pendle has been feeding Ostnard is getting more and more airplay in the UK, and they're actually getting very excited about it, not just at the embassy, but beyond at, at, at MI6. And they actually think they seem to have justification for going to war. So are we at this point basically when it turns into kind of a a, a pre-Iraq war parable? I think the, I think we should say farewell to Uncle Benny cause, and, and, and also maybe say farewell to... Um, Jamie Lee Curtis, because she begins to catch on that Jeffrey Rush is lying, and they that's when they have their big, what must on paper must be their big emotional sequence in which she challenges him about whether or not he's having an affair, yeah. or whether or not he's just lying to her, and sort of the two not being as different as Harry would believe. And this is when Uncle Benny last appears, and he this is when he sort of makes his pitch where, you know, the truth is the only thing that hurts you. So lie and lie and lie and lie. And then he, that's, that's Bye, his Benny. last. Bye, Benny. See. Bye, Benny. You could have been Benny. something. <laughs> I think this is, I think the film really gets worse as it, I can't tell if it gets worse or it gets more disappointing because you realize it's not going to be that. But Uncle Benny's departure is a good point to acknowledge that. The film at this point, it just becomes less and less interesting. Yeah. Much, um, well, much like the, uh, much yeah, like the intelligence it. plans, the, 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 pl- oh, fuck. the, the, the the train's out of the station, you know, it's on the way. Like it's, 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 uh, I really kind of botched this up. I had sort of this whole vision in my head of, um, <laughs> so these spy plans that Osnard has been selling back to MI6 are getting more and more airplay and are more and more enticing. And they're really attracted to this idea of Mickey Abraxas as a, as a revolutionary and the silent opposition. And it's all bullshit. It means nothing. 
it's all made up from Harry Pendel, but it's going to be enough to motivate MI6 to go to the U.S. and demand that the the two countries join together and invade Panama. Well, I I think this is if you I'm interesting, and this is something that's not really picked up in the f- film. The novel is very much of its time, like late 1996. Like there's various references, points to the embattled sort of conservative party prime minister looking to sort of get a pre-election boost through some adventure in Panama. There's, you know, descriptions of sort of MI6 uh, or people in the intelligence, you know, frustrated with the way the government has sort of run is. I think there's a quote from one person in British intelligence who says, quote, God, how we love this government, Little England PLC. And it sort of fits that sense of post-factor John Major Britain, you know, apart from selling arms to some shady people, not really much, you know, Britain's retreating from the world in the sort of post-Cold War era. And I don't know, to me, the novel very felt much felt like it was at that moment in time, including at one point, they discussed the three areas, and I'm actually opening up the novel to get to the correct quotation. They're discussing the three areas of interest, and one is basically arms sales. And this was a controversy, actually, of the John Major government. It was a lot of the shady arms deals became under scrutiny this time, including in places like Indonesia. The second is Ireland, and the third is Islamic terrorism, which just mentions is very low priority. So, I mean, in the novel, look how it captures that specific moment in time and so Britain's place in the post-Cold War era. And it sort of comes up in the film, but not as much. I agree. This is this is a dud of a scene and mostly just introduces the Americans as just big dumb bullies. And, well, and, and it's like, it's the great it's the great trope of if you've spent a movie that's mostly about non-Americans and then you need to include important Americans, they're always just cigar chomping Texans. I was shocked to see people smoking inside. I and mean, I feel like this is the tail end of like smoking inside. Like, it's 2001. Like, New York was going to ban smoking inside in bars like three years later. I, I, I was taken aback how much inside smoking was taking place in this film. I'm with Leo. I think, it, I think despite all the brown face in this movie, the indoor smoking is the most offensive component of the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the Americans, like, they think they're going to go in. Dylan Baker's briefly in a scene as like a vengeful, angry general who gives an impassioned speech that they have to invade Panama and like the fucking the horses are off you know off to the races I do like the the um Scotsman how giddy he is that he's managed to get the Americans to pony up money yeah. for his venture and this sort of sense of self-importance like oh we get to do something yeah we're not just as Osnard says at one scene sucking on the American teat um I thought that was good and that was kind of interesting the, I would say the one good bit in the second half of the movie is the escalation of the money that is demanded, yeah. where Harry Pendle, I think, says says 10 million, and then Osnar demands 15 million, and then the Scot demands 20. I mean, it's an easy bit, but I think it's cute. Agreed. Yeah. Numbers. Sure. We love to count them. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so the uh, Andy Osnard now uh, has to come up with a silent opposition in order to pay this money too, or otherwise uh, out himself as a fraud. But there is a complication, which is that our dear friend, brown-faced Brendan Gleeson, has noticed that the police are outside of his house and uh, offed himself. Yeah. And I think another another moment, much like the emotional fight between Jamie Lee Curtis and Jeffrey Rush, that is supposed to have great emotional heft that feels completely empty, because of nothing performances. Brendan Gleeson has done nothing to endear himself to this aud- to to me, the audience member, and so I don't care when he dies. Have we passed a scene where Jeffrey Rush yells at his customers? 
Yeah, he, which is... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he walks into that scene... First of all, in that scene, someone mentions, like, yeah, we don't want to have, like, these inspectors on the canal because they'll find the drugs and the guns. And I'm like, you know, if you'd introduced that scene at the start of the film, I would have found that interesting. And, like, it could have been a good building point to how Pendle sells increasingly lies to the government. But, like, no, that just comes in too late for us to care. And to these, these stakes, if you'd built up that people kind of seeing through Pendle's act... And we're like, he's too expensive, we're going somewhere else for our suits. That scene also would have had some emotional resonance, but it's just not developed. So it doesn't. It's cruddy. Um, the the British bring over gold bars. Andrew Osnard is going to steal them. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis goes to his apartment and yells at him. Uh, he tries to rape her, which I think he does in the book. Yeah, he does in the book. And I th- think I'm glad it doesn't happen in the movie. Like, I can't... Uh, yeah, I'm glad. The re- all things being equal and the rest of the movie being what it is, there's no way I would like it more if that beat got played out fully. I, I mean, it did if the ending was different. Then it could have perhaps worked, but considering where they go, I'm like, yeah, I think it's, it's good. That if the film was committed to savagery... Yes. ...then I think you could justify it. But we'll get to this teddy bear of an ending that drives me insane. But <laughs> Yeah, so Osnard... Uh, we get a fucking car chase, which is like, not to like call our shot too early, but Caleb, there's a point in a most wanted man where you were, where you and our guest are just pulling your hair out at like a specific beat that is kind of just like <laughs> an insult to everything. Lecrae's books are what makes them great. And this car chase is when I'm just like, fuck this movie. But it's weird to say it's a betrayal of Lecrae's work because he was executive producer on this and he's covered the screenplay. Yeah. So he has a hand in this, he, clearly. He does but i don't i think he's got a hand but not final say and i believe i believe this is this film was noted to death this film had i i i don't have confirmation for this but this this had to be just studio there's a a lecture quote about there's a lecture quote about adaptations and i'm not i would i believe it's a reference to this one but i can't confirm it in which he says that watching your book get adapted to a movie is like watching a cow get turned into bouillon cubes. I don't know. I mean, it definitely like his, because he continues to let people adapt his works, you know? It does, it's not like this one just burns the whole concept for him and he never does it again. So I think he is. And hearing interviews with the filmmakers about the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy from 2011, he's a pretty hands-off collaborator. Like, he does say he makes himself available but not involved, sort of. Like, contact me if you think I can be of help in this but it is ultimately your movie, which I I think is very big of him. I kind of respect that a lot about John Le Carre, and certainly it's why this podcast has legs in the first place, is that he had this attitude about his work and mm-hmm. about about collaborating and, and about just adaptation as a process. Yeah, so, so we have a car chase that ends with... Uh, with... with Pierce Brosnan and uh, Jeffrey Rush pulling into a, a sugar cane field. Okay, but we did miss though, the scene of the embassy, one where the ambassador barters for oh, a yeah. payoff to get away with it, which is like a really last minute term, which is not really set up. And then two, when Pierce Brosnan asks the um, woman who works at the embassy for a farewell fuck, and she just like thinks about it for a second, like no, but thinks about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like that beat. I gotta say, I think I mean I think that's a good send off for their relationship, which is sort of like. Nah, a very yeah. self-aware, yeah, sort of non-existent. You know, they have no, they have some chemistry. I no, I agree. I think that's that's the 
the peak of the last 20 minutes of this movie but we we get a, a very a very poorly staged car chase that doesn't make any sense except to just keep some sort of energy going they pull into a cane field pierce brosnan's car gets stuck he needs to get a lift to the airport and leave the country before the impending american invasion i sort of uh, was more favorable of it i felt like his driving uh the kind of car he did off road showed his inexperience with panama sure yeah yeah mm-hmm. and then he gets stuck in the mud if i'm like okay i can see that that, that that's a believable thing that happened yeah and then we get the invasion of panama which is frankly the helicopter appears and then the last five minutes we just can Frankly, confusing. It's just a wash. Like, the helicopters show up, but, like, Jamie Lee Curtis, like, gets the president on the phone, and that gets the U.S. Like, somehow it's resolved immediately. We get some really bad CGI helicopter flyover shots. Yeah. (sighs) How does Brosnan end up at the airport? He gives a fucking big bag of money to the ambassador, and the movie takes its second shot at trying to be Casablanca and says, Pierce Brosnan says, uh, is this the start of a beautiful friendship? And the ambassador says, no, fuck you. Um, I thought that I thought that was funny. Yeah, but that's just like me in this whole movie. The movie's like, we're Casablanca, right? And I'm like, no, fuck you. <laughs> it's uh, it's just a disaster. But the I, I mean, I think you kind of undersold how terrible this decision is to call off the invasion. Because this neuters... The entire satirical edge of this work, which is all about how the sort of petty lies and self-mythology of spy work leads to imperialism and truly horrifying consequences. And in this film, the only consequence is that Brendan Gleeson kills himself. And again, we don't care because, frankly, good riddance to this brown face atrocity. Um... There are no stakes. Nothing goes wrong. And then the killer, Coda, Jeffrey Rush, goes home and comes clean to his wife about his past and his lies. And again, no consequences. She doesn't care. She doesn't care. He makes pancakes for his kids. It's maddening. It's awful. This is atrocious. No lessons are learned. And Pierce Brosnan gets away with it. Which I kind of like. I don't know. I mean. You like this? I, I like that he gets away. I like that. I don't I don't like the ending with his family. That's fucking stupid and is not justified yeah. at all. But I, I like Pierce Brosnan getting away with it. Um, I, yes, I do like that. We talked about this. Is, this movie comes out in April of 2001. And I think mm-hmm. five months later, after September 11th, I don't think this kind of portrayal of the U.S. military would fly again. And I think maybe if this had been a more potent or interesting movie, I do, I, I'm not going to insist the counterfactual that John Borman's 2001 The Tailor of Panama could have stopped the Iraq invasion. But <laughs> it's a movie that's like about that. And it's so it's so frustrating that it is like such a great document of deceit and deceit causing war. And and that it's just such a fucking lifeless piece of art uh, to get that. And I actually have a an audio drop from John Le Carre talking about the Iraq War. All right, so here's John Le Carre. This is on Democracy Now. America has entered one of its periods of historical madness, but this is the worst I can remember. Worse than McCarthyism, worse than the Bay of Pigs and in the long term, potentially more disastrous than the Vietnam War. 
how Bush and his junta succeeded in deflecting America's anger from bin Laden to Saddam Hussein is one of the great public relations conjuring tricks of history. But they swung it, that the American public is not merely being misled, it is being browbeaten and kept in a state of ignorance and fear. The carefully orchestrated neurosis should carry Bush and his fellow conspirators nicely into the next election. Those who are not with Mr. Bush are against him. Worse, they are the enemy. Which is odd, because I'm dead against Bush, but I would love to see Saddam's downfall. Just not on Bush's terms, and not by his methods. And not under the banner of such outrageous hypocrisy. John Le was a real one. He was yeah, a sharp I mean, guy. You're right, in the novel it really <laughs> feels like he's predicting me what would happen in the Iraq war. Um, and back to the story I told earlier, Richard Dearlove, who was head of MI6 in 1994-2004, apparently told ministers in July 2002 that, quote, intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy. And like a lot of the reporting that's now come out about the MI6 in particular, their intelligence about the Iraq war, I mentioned the so-called dodgy dossier, the sources that were told about the chemical weapons program being inspired by the Sean Connery from The Rock. Um, yeah, like he, in many ways, he sort of did predict. Yeah, I mean, I think totally. Sort of I mean, he listened to that clip, and that's ways. that's that's before we invade Iraq, and he talks about how it could even be more destructive than the Vietnam War, and we Iraq is the longest war we have been in now. You know, it's this like horrifying, like awful reality that I mean, there's a lot of talk about how John Le Carre maybe lost his fastball after the Cold War, and I don't know if he really did, like. Like, this is super insightful and potent book that he put together on this very topic. It's insightful, but I think we also, as I mentioned it being very 1990s, it's very 1990s in the framework, but you mentioned his fastball. I mean, yes, he's, he certainly understands intelligence as much as he did in the 1960s, but is he's as good a novelist here as he is in The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or Tinker Tailor that's, Soldier Spy? That's the crux of it, I think, for sure. I, I, I think it's, it's a less impressive book, and it's certainly a less impressive movie. So, so we've talked about Jewishness before, and we've talked about sort of the the husk of characters in this film, and how none of them. Uh, but I, I, I want to talk about Harry Pendle's Jewishness or lack of Jewishness in this film, because I've not read the novel, but I don't hate Jeffrey Rush in this film, but I do hate the character of Harry Pendle. I think there is nothing identifiable or interesting about him in this film. He does things, but he is not things. And the fact that they sort of strip away this Jewish identity from him, I do think is a fascinating and terrible choice. Um, I think he's as present though in the film as is in the book. I think his Jewishness is as present there. I think his characterization is not in his novel is more about how he's someone who lives off the kind of bullshit he spouts and the film is the novel was sparked because of that and the film sort of gets that there's moments of acknowledging that it doesn't really go far enough so that's this this is kind of the question that i that i want to get because i think um the character of, of harry pendle is, is someone who dreams of being an insider but is always sort of inherently thrust to the outside that experience is kind of central mm-hmm. to jewishness um, is sort of proximity to power and and sort of the uh, the 
superficial trappings of that power, but there is sort of an inherent outsiderness. Um, I should say to the audience who doesn't know that I am I am Jewish, but uh, I think that is that is central to what it is to to be a Jew, and that that's why you know I I find it compelling that this Jewish character is an expat who you know who wants to be a great tailor, but but can't be there. So I do think the fact that he is Jewish in the novel, even if it's not a major part of the novel, does ground the character in real experience and uh, something identifiably human. But the fact that he has been sort of stripped of that in the film leads Harry Pendle to be just a husk. There's nothing defining about him other than he's played by Jeffrey Rush, and Jeffrey Rush is a weird-looking guy who's fun to look at. Um, I think this is just... Jeffrey Rush, he does show a lot of skin in this movie. That's only only one (laughs) thing I want to know. Jeffrey Rush is in boxers in multiple points, and at one time he even does like a sexy like rolled R to Jamie Lee Curtis in bed. <laughs> oh yeah, that that's, was a that's, weird... That was cool. <laughs> I mean, that more than the CGI of the helicopters requires a suspension of disbelief. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, I, I just... this That's all I want to say. Whether John Le Carre sort of understood what he was playing with, with you know, Jewish identity or not, I can't say because I haven't read the novel. But I, I can say that John Borman's decision to sort of cut cut that aspect of the character reads to me as craven. But what's weird is that we see Daniel Radcliffe, who, as much as Ten Year Old can, gives a good performance in this film. He's dropped off and we see him he's being dropped off at a Jewish school. So like Borman acknowledges it but doesn't do anything about it, which makes it awkward. Leo I am so glad you have brought up Daniel Radcliffe. This brings me directly into the game show I have designed for today's episode. John Le Carre's collective adaptations, along with the James Bond films. I think these are kind of our two, if you're an American film goer, I think this is kind of the two big ways that you encounter British actors in American films. But of course, there's a third franchise referenced in this film, young Daniel Radcliffe playing six-year-old Mark Pendle, Jeffrey Rush's son, and that is the Harry Potter film franchise, which collects so many other character actors and just and just members of, of the British acting world. So, Caleb and Leo, this is a game show called Potter or Notter. I have assembled a list of actors who are in either the Pierce Brosnan or Daniel Craig James Bond movies, or they are in The Tailor of Panama. And you will have to accurately guess, guess, are they a Potter or a Notter? Have they appeared in a Harry Potter film or not? I will give you... Uh, b- before we get this started, Leah, yeah. are, you a, are you a big Potterhead? No. Are you okay? I've never, I've never seen a Potter movie. I've never read a Potter Jesus. novel. I'm coming in completely blind. This is <laughs> going to be 50-50 for me. You, well, you only ever have 50-50 on this, uh, right? <laughs> well, the big thing yeah. is that... Now that J.K. Rowling's kind of been cancelled, um, I feel like it's going to be less of an issue for you, Caleb. I always, I always knew that she was cancelable, and that is why, as an eight-year-old boy, I decided that magic was stupid and I would not deal with it. Um, yeah, let's get let's get into. Do the you game think? Show. Okay, last point um, before we get into the game. Do you think that did you ever have like religious friends growing up whose like parents wouldn't let them read Harry Potter or something? No, but I like read about the phenomenon. Do you like, think, I knew when I was a kid, I knew that was a thing. Do you think those evangelicals are going to become Harry Potter fans now that she's a fucking turf? 
There was a, a um, yeah, there was a, a New York, uh, no, not New Yorker. I think, I can't remember what publication it was. A very good piece about sort of the Rowling legacy. And yes, she has been adopted by uh, by hardcore Fuck. evangelicals. Uh. All right. This is just about the fucking Warner Brothers film adaptations. This podcast does not endorse or even particularly like J.K. Rowling. I'm going to say it right now, we will never do a miniseries on J.K. Rowling. I just think it gets so repetitive because you're basically dealing with like the same. There's no variation, really. I mean, like there is some between some of the films, but at the end of the day, you're going to run out of interesting things to say. Yeah. Again, I was just pressed to make a game show involving the Taylor of Panama <laughs> and James Bond and and I had a good rhyme come together in my head. And so here we are, Potter or Notter. Oh, good. Let's go. We will start off with a couple of easy ones, and then it'll collectively get a little harder as it goes on. Do we have a preference on who goes first, if it should be Caleb or if Leo's the be... guest. Leo, do you want to go first? Sure. And this is whether or not they were in a Bond film or they were in a Harry Potter film. They're in a Harry Potter film. So I will give you oh, yeah. I will give you the actor and I will reference their role in the Harry Potter or James Bond. I mean, I'll reference their role in the James Bond or John or Taylor of Panama that they're in. Yeah. Um and we're just pulling from Pierce Brosnan and and Daniel Craig, James Bond movies. Okay. Okay. This is a all right, right out the gate. Leo. Pierce Brosnan. Has he ever been in a Harry Potter film? Is he a Potter or a Notter? He's a Notter. Leo, correct. Pierce Brosnan is a Notter. He was too busy getting drunk on set the set of Mamma Mia. Is he really drunk a lot on Mamma Mia? There's like behind the scenes footage of like, well, not, I don't know, Pierce wasn't, but there was behind the scenes footage of people on that set, including Middle Street, just drinking <laughs> liquor from the, bo- from the bottle. And the director being like, yeah, I let them have a few drinks just to warm them up for the... Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad they had fun. All right, Leo, you have collected one point. Now we kick it over to Caleb. Caleb, Daniel Radcliffe, who plays Mark Pendle in this, is he a Potter <laughs> or a daughter? Uh, I do know this one. Yeah, that's that's Harry Potter himself. Oh, terrific. Great. All right, we're doing so well. All right, all right. One point each next round. Leo, Brendan Gleeson, who plays Mickey Abraxas in this movie, is he a Potter or a Notter? I'm going to say a Notter. Leo, incorrect. Brendan Gleeson ah. is a Potter. He plays Mad-Eye Moody in The Goblet of Fire. Oh. We kick it over to Caleb. Caleb, Harold Pinter plays Uncle Benny in this film. Is he a Potter or a Notter? I think he would have been too busy with his Pirates of the... Wait, Harold Pinter. Harold Pinter. Uh, who, he, Uncle Benny? Uncle Benny. Uncle Benny. Ooh, this is different. I was. I thought you meant Jeffrey Rush. Uh, I'm going to say a Notter. I don't think there's enough old men for him to be in Harry Potter. Caleb, that's correct. Harold Pinter is a Notter. He's never appeared in a Harry Potter film. Fuck you, Leo. Fuck you. I came to win. I've been owned. Leo, uh, we're now getting into James Bond films. So Robbie Coltrane, who plays the Russian gangster friend of Brosnan in uh, The World Is Not Enough in Goldeneye. Robbie Coltrane. Is he a Potter or a Notter? I think he's a Potter. Caleb, correct. He's a Potter. He plays Hagrid. Caleb has synced it back up. He's got two and two. We're tied. Uh, Leo, Robert you... Carlyle, who plays the villain in The World Is Not Enough. <laughs> that was uh, me. You've you've mixed our names up. Okay, wait. Well, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at my document. <laughs> so, I guess we're not going to put this in the Je- in your Jeopardy audition tape. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Leo is tied up. Now we go to Caleb. 
Caleb, Robert Carlyle, who plays the bad guy in The World Is Not Enough. Um, I can bring up that character's name if it would be helpful, but... I haven't seen this movie. It's not going to help me. <laughs> oh, fuck. You're double fucked. All right. Um, I'm going to say a nodder. Correct. He is a nodder. He has never appeared in a Harry Potter film. Leo, you fucking asshole. Why don't you fucking take a plane to MI6 or whatever and fucking find a new job? Because this one is mine. Get off my fucking podcast. <laughs> Leo, now we're going to kick into uh okay, yeah, we're still in Boston one. Nope, okay, now I'm I'm gonna move it up to Die Another Day. Rosamond Pike, who plays the blonde fencing instructor in that movie. I'm sure she has a name. I just awful. I don't know her name. <laughs> this is such a Is she a potter or an otter? A notter, because I don't think there's any I can't remember any high part of roles for like women between the ages of like eighteen and fifty. Leo, you're correct. She is a nodder. All right, so Leo's picked up a point. Leo's tied it back up to three. All right, Caleb. All right, Leo. Uh, no, fuck, Caleb. Caleb. Jonathan Price, the antagonist of Die Another Day. Is he a Potter or a nodder? Jonathan Price, the fucking legend. Um, incredible actor. How many old men are there in Harry Potter? You have Dumbledore. I know that one. Countless. We've done Hagrid. <sighs> Jonathan Price. He was in Pirates of the Caribbean, I think. So I think that's going to be taking up a lot of his time in the mid-2000s. I'm going to say a nodder. Caleb, correct. He's a nodder. He has never appeared Fuck in a yes. Harry Potter film. Jonathan Price, come on Best Adapted Podcast. All right, Leo. Albert Finney, who plays the groundskeeper Kincaid in Skyfall, has Albert Finney ever been in a Harry Potter film? Yes, he has been. Leo, incorrect. He's a nodder. He has never been in a Harry Potter oh. film. Oh, too oh. easy. And I was incredibly confident on that take. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Caleb hangs on to his 4-3 lead, but there's always a bonus question at the end where you can make it back. All right. Caleb. Rafe Fiennes. Who Voldemort. is the... I know this one. All right. You have, you have to say... He's Ray a Potter. Potter or He's not. a Potter. He's Voldemort. He's the big bad. Right. Okay, I'm only going to give you 0.5 of a point for that. What? I think that one is... I think it's too easy. <laughs> if you... I, you know, if you hadn't interrupted me, you probably would have gotten the full... But. <laughs> uh, this is anti-Semitism at work. Leo. This is the bonus question. So this one is always worth enough points to make you win if you get it right. So I'm going to say this one is worth five points, which will put you over Caleb's four points. Are you points. kidding me? <laughs> You'll also get one. You will also get a question like this, Caleb, to, uh. to, to, to win it if you need it. So, Leo, John Cleese, who famously succeeded Desmond Lewandowski. That's not his fucking... John Cleese, who famously took on the role of Q once the actor died. In the Pierce Brosnan series, is John Cleese ever been in a Harry Potter movie? Monty Python alum, John Cleese. No, he hasn't been. John Cleese is a Potter. He voices a nearly headless wow. Nick. I'm sorry, Leo. So, uh, to make things interesting, though, Caleb gets one last question. Caleb, if you get this one wrong, I'm going to take off a point. What? <laughs> <laughs> then I still win by half a point. 
I'm going to take off a point. It's just like the ending to The Merchant of Venice. Just like changing the rules on him so he yeah. loses. If you get it wrong, you lose two points, Caleb. So <laughs> will win. This is horseshit, but I accept your terms. All right. Caleb. Mods Mickelson, the antagonist of the Casino Royale, Lashif himself. Has Lashif... Is he a potter or a nodder? <sighs> okay. Mads Mikkelsen. Hot, but also has a fucked up face. We can agree this. Rafe Fiennes has Voldemort. Rafe Fiennes, hot man. Voldemort, fucked up face. He's got no nose. Voldemort has 18 million underlings called something stupid. And I think they're all hot, but have fucked up faces. So, Mads Mikkelsen. Potter. That is correct, Caleb. Fuck but I will you, say, Frank, not for your not for your deduction. <laughs> uh, Mods Mickelson will appear in the next Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, replacing Johnny Depp, who has been fired for being a fucking piece of shit. Basically, <laughs> they're gonna fire him, and they have replaced him with Mods Mickelson is gonna play him now. I'm sorry. So. Y- you were going to so, take away my win unjustly if I didn't know the cast of a movie that doesn't exist yet? Correct. <laughs> it's surprising that now we finally, people, I feel like executives are tired of Johnny Depp's shit. But, um, correct me if, my, if I'm wrong, though. Johnny Depp was the villain in those movies, right? He is, yep. yep. So, so you were right that he's a villain. Hot, fucked up face, bad guy. I win. Thank you. It's it's been an honor. This is my first win, I think. In really, I think so. Because you keep stealing them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) and I tried my damnedest this time around. I could have. I actually. I had a moment when I was phrasing it where I was like, I could say, "Has he appeared past tense in a Potter movie?" And then I would have given you Nodder and said he hadn't. This brings us to the final part of our podcast, Leo, where we decide. where we kind of give our concluding thoughts and in our, in our ranking of this movie. Caleb, do you want to take us into it? Yeah. So uh, generally uh, we want you to um, boil down your complex thoughts into something that is totally demeaning to you. And so we are going to ask you is John Borman's 2001, the Taylor of Panama. Is it a rad adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Does it make you mad adaptation? Maybe a little sad adaptation. Uh, any variation of the above, but it has to rhyme with adaptation. Take us through your thoughts, Leo Martin. I think it's a fine adaptation. I think he actually does a pretty decent job of capturing the sort of rough plot of the novel and some of the interiority that makes the novel interesting to read. It's ultimately, it's ultimately not a very good movie, but I don't think it's, it's not, I'm, I'm not trying to say it's a bad novel, but why it's a bad film is not because he butchers the book. It's just not a very good movie. I love your thoughts. I think that this film is three genres mashed into one. It's a farce, it's a satire, and it's a family drama. Um, it's a farce that's not funny. It's a satire that has no teeth, and it's a family drama that has no humanity or specificity. This movie is a porta potty at a three-day asparagus festival, 
It's stinky. This movie <laughs> sucks. I hate it. It's really ugh. Fuck uh, this John Borman bad job. Uh, bad adaptation. This movie sucks. For me, this movie is clued into enough things that make the novel interesting that I kind of am like, hmm? and it kind of piques my interest and I wanted to see what was under the hood. And that's why I really wanted to be the reader on this one. And I think that Borman is kind of clued into the theme of, of, of infidelity that I think is really strong in the novel and that he's good at getting that across. However, too many of the parts of this movie are kind of unforgivably bad and like often boring and really that clue, I think, is from the start with the comic sans that we're in for not a good time. <laughs> and it's just kind of maddening that there's a movie about about the Iraq war before the Iraq war happens that is as like useless and impotent as this movie is. So, sorry, John Borman. I love your work. I'm excited to watch Zardoz and get in the fight on it. But your Taylor of Panama is a bad adaptation. Leo, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have anything that you want to plug or shout out or any causes you think people should donate money to? Anything like that? Uh, since I don't know when this is going to come out. Um... February. Yeah. Maybe at very end of March. Or maybe at very end of January, but probably February, early uh, February. No, not, not particular. Though I always want more recruits on Teams Outdoors. Uh, Leo, thanks for joining us. Everybody, thanks for tuning in. Um, we'll be back next week, uh, covering the constant gardener until then may your clothes fit better than this movie did for, uh, nah, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, bye. <laughs>